Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Luke chapter 3. We will be continuing uh, through the Gospel of Luke together. My wife and I uh, and a small group from the church uh, flew in last night on a 737, just to let you know, uh, to SeaTac Airport. We traveled to to Louisville, Kentucky, along with 11,000 young adults and a few hundred leaders primarily from the North America, from North America, but also from all around the world. People flew in for a, a conference called the Cross Conference. And the focus of this conference was missions, reaching unreached abroad and discipleship, reaching our neighbors and the nations that God brings here with the gospel. It was a very full week, late nights, early mornings, especially for the uh, no longer in our 20s group. Uh, But during the conference, it was mentioned that somewhere around 75,000 young adults had gathered at similar conferences, accumulative, in the U.S. during this past week. And one of the things that was so exciting and so encouraging for me is just to see and hear that, like, you know, sometimes I think you know, as I get older, I think younger generations is like, oh man, what's gonna, what is gonna be, this is gonna be like. And, and I know that was thought of my generation when we were coming of age, but uh, it was so encouraging to see 11,000 young adults gathering together, investing their time, their resources, interrupting their holiday schedule to be at a conference where they would deepen their knowledge of God's word a conference that would ignite a passion for spreading the gospel. Now, I'll be honest, I'm not a huge conference guy, kind of an introvert, so conferences are like terrifying for me, but uh, it was a great week. It was so encouraging to worship alongside with, with so many brothers and sisters from around the world to see students commit their lives to serving overseas, to going home and talking with their local church elders about what it would take for them to get overseas and and reach unreached language groups. It was super encouraging, super exciting, but during the conference, I did find some time to study our passage for today. So if you have your Bibles, hopefully it's open to Luke chapter 3. We will be concluding Luke chapter 3 today. And at first glance, we might be tempted to brush past these 18 verses. If we did, I believe we would miss a pivotal point in Luke's gospel. Because right here at the end of chapter 3, Luke leans in on a very important point, namely the identity of Jesus. Jesus said plainly, and this is, this is important, understanding who Jesus is is of vital importance. Jesus said it this way, very plainly, in John 14, verse 6, he says, no one, that's no one, comes to the Father except through me. According to Jesus, the way to be reconciled to God the Father is only through God the Son, and only in Christ does one inherit true life. So it is imperative that we place our trust in the right Jesus. It is imperative that we preach the right Jesus. But how do we know that we have the right Jesus, that we have not fashioned Jesus into something that he is not, something of our own making or of cultural influence? How do we know? Well, 
Here's two ways that God has given us to help us in our confidence that we have a right understanding of who he is. Number one, we have God's word. We have it in our own language. We don't have to learn Latin or Greek or ancient Hebrew. We can read it in English, and it is trustworthy, and we need to read it. We need to study it. But you might, one might argue, one, others, others have the Bible, and they still misunderstand it, or they distort its true meaning. How can we be confident? Well, the second thing that is a gift that God has given us is we have one another. We have the church. The church is a gift to help us in our discipleship process. We learn from other faithful, tested disciples. We look to the old, trusted paths. Those that saints have traveled, long traveled before us. We're not searching for new revelation. We are looking to rightly understand the revealed word of God. And we love God's word. As we grow in our knowledge of God's word, our love for God's word grows. We love God's word more than anything because we love Jesus above everything. Love for God ignites a desire to know God accurately. But there is a problem. Sin. Sin has corrupted, has marred, has distorted us. Our perspective, our actions, our thoughts, our motives, to the very core of who we are, we have been corrupted. It has severed our relationship between the creator and his creation. So what can be done? This is a major theme of scripture. As you read Old Testament, New, New Testament, we see this problem. What can be done the glory of God through the redemption of fallen Adam and his descendants. How can God mediate for corrupt man without denying his righteousness? God cannot overlook sin. His righteousness and holiness demand justice for sin. Another problem that the scriptures address, who then can atone for the sin of God's image bearers? Only God is perfectly righteous. But in order for relationship to be restored, the sin of Adam must be atoned for. It must be covered over. These problems are exposed in the Old Testament. As you read through the Old Testament, you see account after account of account of, of those infected by this problem, those wrestling through how do we defeat this issue? How do we get beyond this? This is the tension that the Old Testament describes. And this is the glory that the Gospels declare, that this, these questions have an answer. After establishing Jesus' miraculous birth, John shows up, and rumors begin to swirl. As we saw last week, John the Baptist, this, this, people were asking, could this wild man, prophet from the wilderness, could he usher in the solution, the remedy for our problem? The Old Testament's hinted and, and proclaimed generations before this that, that Messiah would bring wholeness to God's people. So there were rumors around, could this wild man from the desert, could he be the solution that we need? Lord willing, we will see in Luke's gospel account something that the original crowds, those in this instance wondering about John that they missed, they did not see. Some wondered maybe John would be the one that would bring them freedom from what they viewed as their greatest oppressor, Rome. At that present time, they missed the reality. Luke is declaring here in his gospel 
Luke is writing of past events. John, Jesus' baptism we'll look at today. We'll look at Jesus' lineage. And next week, we'll look at the temptation of Jesus. Luke is looking back at these, and he's saying all of this is to direct our attention not to John. As we read through these verses, we'll notice John the baptizer is absent from, from Luke's account of Jesus' baptism. Why? Well, Luke is intentional with this. Because it all culminates on Jesus. Jesus had come not to establish a political superiority of Israel, but he had come for an even greater mission. He'd come to reverse the effects of the eternal curse that we read about in Genesis 3. He had come to redeem God's people. Jesus would do what no one else could do. The narrative of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, the looming question remains unanswered. Who can remove the stain of sin? The corruption of Genesis chapter three. As we look at the Old Testament that leads us to the the gospels, we see that Adam failed to uphold God's righteous standard. Israel failed again and again. You just read through the Old Testament. You know, hopefully you're the new year starting through the Bible again. And I would encourage you, if you don't have a Bible plan, I would encourage you to find one. There's some great Bible plans out there to get you regularly reading God's word. Try and make it through in one year. If you can't, no worries. Try it for two years. Like just regularly set a routine of getting God's word in in your life, in your hearts. But what we see in the Old Testament is Israel failed again and again to uphold God's righteous standard. Not even the most humble leader of of Israel's leaders like Moses, not the strongest, most courageous warriors like Joshua or Samson or, or David, not the wisest kings like Solomon, not even the prophets could turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord. The priests, they could not make enough sacrifices to atone for the sin of the people. And the kings... They couldn't lead in the way of righteousness everlasting. We read through the Old Testament, we see that the state of humanity, it would have been utterly hopeless if it were not for the promises of God. Like the one in Genesis chapter three. Now wait a minute, Genesis chapter three, that's where we see the great fall of Adam. That's where everything went a mess. Yes, but there is a little ray of hope that's there that spreads throughout the tapestry of the Old Testament. And it grows and it grows until it's a crescendo in the Gospels as Christ arrives. This ray of hope is that in the judgment of the Lord for the sin of man comes a promise of redemption in verse 15 where he says, the seed of the woman will crush, crush the head of the serpent. God promises from the beginning, I will redeem my people. And the rest of the Old Testament is watching us try and do it on our own, realizing we cannot, until it comes to the point, the gospel writer said, at the right time in history, Christ came. Man's greatest enemy, sin, which leads to death, God promised from the very beginning would one day be defeated. A perfect human representative was necessary for the defeat of death and the redemption of Adam's descendants. 
But who can uphold God's righteous standard? The Old, the Old Testament narrative makes this point very clear. No one but God. And so what we'll see in our text today is that Christ, the righteous one, truly God, truly man, identified with fallen humanity, exchanged the favor of God for the wrath of God to redeem his people from the curse. This is good news. Well, we're going to break this up into two chunks. We're going to look first at Jesus' baptism in verses 21 and 22, and then we'll tackle my favorite portions of Scripture in all of the Bible, genealogies. Not really. They're good. I'll talk about that more later. Let's hit verses 21 and 22 uh, here together. Luke chapter 3, verse 21 says this, Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Luke focuses on Jesus' identity, his true divine nature, and his truly human nature. A theological concept called the hypostatic union. It's kind of a difficult concept, but Jesus had two complete natures. He wasn't half God and half man. He wasn't like, you know, those mascots or the dude dressed up like Mickey Mouse where there was a person inside of a thing, like a divine nature inside of a human nature. No, he was fully human and he was fully divine. And you go, how does that work? Exactly. Church has wrestled with trying to understand this concept much like wrestling with the concept of the Trinity. How is it one God in three persons? How does this work? And it can be confusing, I know. But would we want it any other way? Would we want it that we could easily figure out, understand God? No, I am very comfortable with a God that makes my limited human brain spin when I consider who he is and how he operates. When I know that the amount of my understanding of him is a drop in the bucket of who he actually is. I am quite comfortable with that. Trusting not in my own intellectual ability, but to trust in his goodness as he has revealed it through his word. So in his word, we see that God is fully and truly, in Christ, God is fully and truly human as he is fully and truly divine. Only God, perfect, perfectly righteous, could atone for man's sinfulness. So in the second person of the triune God, God the Son took on human flesh. He entered into the human story. See, John begins his gospel this way. He says that, that, that Jesus became a living tabernacle. The tabernacle was the tent that, was, that represented God's presence among the people. And John says this is what ultimately is fulfilled in Christ. When he took on flesh, when he became fully human as he was fully divine, he dwelt among us. The question is, why? Why was this necessary? 
Mike McKinley addresses this question when he writes this. He says, quote, ultimately, Jesus became one of us so that he could take our place and take our punishment. The sacrificial kindness of God comes into sharper focus when we see the way that the Father's love and pleasure at Jesus' baptism is replaced by the cup of God's wrath at the cross. Jesus willingly identified with sinful humanity so that sinful humans could be identified with his righteousness. The scandalous beauty of the gospel is that the sinless, eternal Son of God entered into the waters of baptism. Now, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Why would a perfectly righteous God need to enter the waters of baptism of repentance to identify himself with a sinful people? Even as the Father declared Jesus' divine identity, this is my Son with whom I am pleased. The Son demonstrated his human, identifying with humans, his human identity through baptism, as if he was saying, consider me to be one of them. Do you feel the magnitude of what is happening here? Two small verses. We could spend all day just on these two verses. There is so much here. God entered into our mess to redeem his people. Entering into the baptism of repentance, not because he sinned, he was sinless so that he would demonstrate his identification that he was standing in the gap for humanity. He would bear the wrath of God for humanity. He was saying, I identify with them. In the baptism, genealogy, and the temptation, Luke points to Jesus' divine nature as the eternal Son of God, truly and fully God. On that note, James Edwards, theologian, emphasizes this point when he writes, quote, the concentration of Son of God, that term, Son of God, is significant because the title appears only sparingly in Luke. Four of its nine times occurs, of, of its nine occurrences are clustered in verses 21, chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 4, verse 13. The baptism, genealogy, and temptation unite to clarify and confirm the Annunciation promises to Mary back in chapter 1. Gabriel, Gabriel announced what Mary's child would do, who he would be. We see this within these three events in Jesus' life, the baptism, his genealogy, and the temptation. Though Luke only designates two verses to this dramatic event, we cannot miss the significance of what has happened. Again, Edwards notes, quote, three events transpire at the baptism of Jesus that in Jewish tradition signify the inauguration or the beginning of God's eschatological or final eternal kingdom. These were three things that in Jewish context they were waiting for, they were looking for. There's other writings saying they are looking for these events to happen, that the Messiah would come. 
One, that the heavens would be opened. The divine veil would be pulled back. Heaven and earth, eternal and temporal, would collide in the person of the Messiah, which we see and Luke is claiming is Jesus Christ. Two, the Spirit of God would descend. And Luke says the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus as a dove descends upon the earth. To liken God's Spirit to a dove is a little unusual, but not wholly unheard of within Judaism. In Jewish tradition, the dove symbolized the wisdom and the word of God. As if God, through a non-Jewish writer, which there's some irony there, Luke, a Greek, was emphasizing the wisdom of God on greater display in the word of God, capital W word, of God who became flesh, according to John 1. Edward notes that, quote, the descent of the spirit on Jesus is not depicted as a metaphor, Uh, of enlightenment or a mystical experience, but is an empirical reality. It is the ultimate reality. The importance of this is fully realized in verse 23, right before he starts talking about Jesus's human nature, his genealogy. In verse 23, we see the supposed reality, the temporal, in contrast to the empirical or the true reality, the eternal Being the son, we'll see in verse 23, Luke writes, being the son, and a parenthetical statement that's to grab our attention, as was supposed of Joseph. You may have read, there's there's a common saying, uh, I think Jesus calls Peter at one time Simon Bar-Jonah. What that means is Simon, son of Jonah. And so that was a common phrase, and, and, and Luke does not interrupt at all the genealogy from this point on. So why does he interrupt it here? It's intentional. He wants to get our attention. He wants to see this is the supposed reality, the temporal. This is what people think he's the son of Joseph. This is the real, this is the the true reality. He's the son of God. What happened at the baptism? That is the true reality. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. So the third, the third thing that we see in the baptism is that the voice of God declared his delight in Jesus, reveals his true identity. This is my son whom I love, with whom I am pleased. Now, we read an account like Jesus' baptism in and sometimes us being removed, and, and I said there's some irony here, and it's because this Luke is a, a, is a Greek uh, writer, and he's using like uh, imagery that Jews would have picked up on like immediately. Let me illustrate it this way. Uh, my daughter, who's serving in missions in Tijuana, Mexico, is, is home for uh, Christmas break. She's here with us uh, just for one more week, unfortunately, but it's been a month that we've been able to spend time with her. Um, she came back and they did, uh, so her job down there is to support the missionaries as they get training by watching their children. So husband and wife can be trained at the same time. And so one of the things that they did for the students on the campus, she's an intern, the interns made a video uh, for the students. Just a fun video and, and she showed us, I loved it, it was amazing. They did a spinoff of It's a Wonderful Life And so, I mean, immediately I got it. I knew what they were doing, but 
There were small nuances, uh, little items within the video that required some explanation. You won't understand this scene unless you know this piece of information. You know, like for one, there's, there's this one scene where, uh, you know, life is falling apart like it, it does in, in uh, um, It's a Wonderful Life. And there's this one scene where one of the students comes up to give a hug to him and he's like, not today, and pushes him away. You wouldn't know what that's all about unless she would say, well, that guy's known on campus for being the guy that just loves to give every guy hugs. Like he's just, he's just a brother that loves to hug people. And, and oh, okay, that's a piece of information that I needed to understand why that's funny, if not. So this is what's happening here. Luke is saying, there are things within this story that we may not fully understand, but there will be readers that go, I know what he's talking about here. I know what this is applying to here. It was ingrained in their culture, right? Just like that, that video had, you know, we, uh, what do we call them inside jokes or whatever, like th- that was ingrained in the culture of the students down there at the, at, the, at the campus in Tijuana, that they understand why that's funny, that we might miss without some explanation. Some of those things that, Luke's, uh, that Luke, and being the, the, uh, the thorough investigator that he was, he was researching. Why was this significant? He was asking questions. I, I can imagine he was asking questions. Why is this significant? Why is this significant for you and your culture? As he's interviewing those whom he did to, to gather his gospel account. And there's many, many triggers for Jewish audience within, within this. I'd mentioned uh, some of those that, that, that they were looking, that were showing the ushering in of God's end kingdom, the coming of the Messiah. But another one was just even the term son or sonship. That would have evoked a lot for a Jew with that culture, with their history, and some of, some of these events that, that would have been triggered for them when, when they heard, he is my son, when they read or heard read, he's my son with whom I'm pleased and heard of this baptism account, they would have thought of texts like Isaiah 49, verse 3. Isaiah was one of the major prophets. A lot of Isaiah's prophecies were written down and are included in our scriptures for us to read Isaiah 49.3 shows that, that Luke is claiming that Jesus is the true suffering servant of Isaiah. Isaiah says, you are my servant in whom I will be glorified. And Luke's saying, listen, that prophecy Isaiah gave, it's really ultimately fulfilled here in Jesus, in his baptism. A few verses later in Isaiah's prophecy, that same servant Isaiah declares that that servant will be a light unto the Gentiles. Gentiles is just a term for anyone who's not a Jew. So for the rest of the world that's not a Jew, he will be a light to the Gentiles. They would have thought of scriptures like Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, where Luke is, is making a claim that Jesus is the true Davidic king of the Psalms. But the Psalm says, you are my son. Or go back further into the desert, Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. Luke is making a claim that Jesus is the true Israel. Where God makes the claim, Israel is my son. Where he tells Pharaoh, let my son go that he may worship me. 
or Genesis chapter 22. Would have been another account that they would have been familiar with that would have been evoked by the language that Luke is using here. Genesis chapter 22 is showing that Jesus is the true beloved son, the true Isaac. I've preached on, on, on this before, so I won't go into it too much, but I love Genesis chapter 22. It is such a beautiful Old Testament picture of Christ. If you're familiar with the account, Genesis 22 is where God had Abraham take his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah, the same mountain that Jesus was crucified on, by the way, to Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son. Now, that is not what Abraham did as, as called out of the nations, called out of Ur to go to where God was leading Abraham. He did not do, the other pagan nations killed their children. Abraham's God did not call him to kill. So what was happening here? Abraham was identifying with the people when he brought his son. But guess what? Isaac was not sacrificed because Isaac would have been an insufficient sacrifice. So God stopped it because it, was all, it, it wasn't about what was happening there. It was about what was happening here with Jesus. When God's son would carry the wood on his back, not Abraham's son, when he would give his life and it would be sufficient. Why is this significant? Because Luke directly ties this divine eschatological event filled with Old Testament imagery with Jesus being with all the people. Now, when all the people were baptized, see, there's an identifica identification here. Jesus identifying with the people. This certainly wasn't an event for Jesus' sake. Jesus was not in need of affirmation of his identity, nor was it for the disciples' benefit. They weren't even on the picture at this point right now in Jesus' baptism. But something significant was happening here as God the Father declares what is. He's declaring the reality. He's not declaring something new about Jesus. He's not changing Jesus' status. That's very important because a lot of misunderstanding has been, been around that, like Jesus was adopted at that point. No, God is declaring what is. This is the true reality. You see him as the son of Joseph. He is the son of God. He has been the son of God from eternity past. He is the son of God right now. Will be the son of God for eternity present, or eternity, all eternity. God is declaring what is. John uses similar language in his introduction to his gospel. Jesus was in the beginning with God. He was God. He was with God. He's God in the beginning, God in the present, and remains God forever. Jesus' identity revealed here, he is truly and fully God. The Father declares this is so. So why does he need to be baptized? As I have mentioned, he is perfect in righteousness. He's never sinned, never will sin. And he brings full delight to the Father. So why is Jesus baptized? He is baptized 
to identify with the crowd, to identify with sinners. And this just reminds us Christ, the righteous one, truly God, truly man, he identified with fallen humanity, exchanged the favor of God for the wrath of God to redeem his people from the curse. So those two verses, we see Jesus' divine nature, his true identity. Then we move into the rest of the chapter where we see Luke emphasize Jesus' human nature. And I will just preface this by saying, as I mentioned earlier, genealogies are, are the toughest thing to read for me. Like, it causes me the most anxiety when I know I need to read a, a genealogy in public. But here's one thing that one of my seminary professors told me. He's like, Nate, they're dead. They don't care if you do not pronounce their names correctly. So I'm going to pass that piece of information on to you. Don't get to the genealogy sections and go, oh, I can't read this. I don't know how to say that name. Like, just, just, just get through it. But as you're doing it, remember, as God knew their name, he knows how to say it. He also knows your name. Those genealogies give us a glimpse on the intimate nature of God. He knows his sheep. That's, that's comforting. Me reading genealogies, not so comforting, but we're going to do it anyway. So, verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Isli. Eslai, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Metathias, the son of Semyon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of jo- Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, I know that one, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admon, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sirug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lemek, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. <laughs> You're too kind. Too kind. All right, enough of that. The perceived reality is not always the true reality. We see in this genealogy, Matthew, or, uh, Luke separates this out and gives a list of who Jesus' line is from. Now, we see in, this temp- see in this, the temporal reality is not always the true reality. 
This statement is important, especially when facing suffering and trials and persecution in this life. We tend to look at the temporal and we focus on that. I think it was Spurgeon that said, we write our suffering, we engrave our sufferings in stone and we write our blessings in sand, something along those lines. We're prone to do this. Don't feel, I mean, we wanna correct this. We wanna be aware of it, but this is natural in our fallen state to do this. But we want to recognize the human perspective is not always the true reality. I think this is one of the points that Luke is emphasizing here. People looked at Jesus. In that time, they looked at Jesus, and they saw the son of Joseph. The true reality was Jesus is the son of God. Briefly, before we look at the identity point being made here, I want to address a difficulty in this passage. Namely, why are there two, why are there differences between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy? Matthew begins his gospel account with the genealogy, and Matthew draws a line from Abraham to Jesus, and largely because of his audience. Whereas Luke ties the genealogy here. Right here in Jesus' baptism, he doesn't begin his gospel account with a genealogy. He puts it here in between the baptism and the temptation, puts a genealogy, which was slightly unusual, but he ties it here with Jesus' baptism. And Luke draws a line from Jesus to Adam and ultimately to God. So why? Why? Well, some of it, as I said, is the audience. Matthew is writing to convince Jews that Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, descended from Abraham. But he also accentuates how most Jews entirely missed the point of what God was doing through Abraham, not segregating an ethnic group, but separating his people, whom he says in the Old Testament will be called from every tribe, every language, every people group. The differences between Luke's genealogy and Matthew's has confounded scholars for centuries. There's been a lot of of ink spilled and pages written on this topic as to why. The reality is the early church did not seem to take issue with the differences. But it's also true that the tension cannot be fully resolved. R.C. Sproul takes a stab at it, though, and he says this, quote, One of the most common uh, solutions is the idea that Matthew gives us, or common explanations, is the idea that Matthew gives us the genealogy of Joseph, and Luke simply gives us the genealogy of Mary. Remember, Matthew was writing his gospel to Jews, and to them, the most important issue is not the virgin birth, but whether Jesus is the legal descendant of David, for the Messiah must be of the lineage of David and the lineage legally comes through Joseph. Why does this matter? Well, Sproul also addresses that. He says this, perhaps the most significant thing for our edification is where the genealogies stop. This is very insightful. He goes on, Matthew's genealogy stops with Abraham, and Abraham is considered the father of the Jewish nation. So again, Matthew is showing the Jewish credentials of Christ. Luke, by verse 38, has taken us right back to Adam. 
who, is the son, who was the son of God. Luke is showing the universality of the mission of Christ. Jesus Christ is not just for the Jews, but he's for the Gentiles, for the Romans, for the Greeks. Jesus is the new Adam, the author of the new humanity, the one who comes to redeem and to reconcile men from every tribe and nation, not merely giving himself as a ransom for the lost sheep of Israel, but pouring out himself as a substitute for the sinful children of Adam's race. Christ, truly God, truly man, because he identified himself with fallen humanity, exchanged the favor of God and took on the wrath of God to redeem his people from the curse. Friends, this is good news. So how are we to respond to this news? Mark's gospel begins Jesus' ministry with Jesus declaring the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's time. Repent and believe in the gospel. When confronted with our sin, and the Bible is very clear at this point, no one is righteous. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, again repeated in Psalm 53, Romans 3, 10. No one is righteous, and all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Romans 3.23, and as I said earlier, even the best of us, the wisest in Solomon, the strongest in Samson, even the best of us could not fix the problem of sin. What must we do to be made right with God? Some throughout church history have, have said, well, maybe we ought to just do good works. If we do more good works, maybe that will balance the scale of our sin. How much is enough? When you have a perfectly righteous God who has never made an error, how much good works can we do? Not enough. Never enough. That's why it's a problem. If we sell all we have and give it to the poor, is that enough? Not enough. Maybe we should despise ourselves. No, that's not the answer either. These options mar the true reality of your identity. You are made in the image of God. Though that image has been distorted by sin, you and I were created to resemble and represent him. The remedy And Luke will continue to explain this throughout his gospel. The remedy is clear. It is Christ. The remedy for our greatest problem is only found in Jesus. And what we see in Jesus' baptism and then in his genealogy is that Christ has identified with sinners like you and me. He has taken the punishment of our great offense against God's holiness. He has paid the price for sin. So the right response to hearing about Jesus' baptism 
to hearing about Jesus' divine nature, who he is, his human nature, his representation of mankind, the right response is repent, turn from sin, and turn to Christ and believe in the gospel. Don't just add it to your way of thinking. Like all your eggs in that basket. Like that's what it's talking about. It's like, if this is not true, we are to be more pitied than anyone else in all of the world because we have 100% sold out. Jesus would say it this way. It's like a man who finds a treasure in an insignificant field. And that man, because he knows the value of that treasure, goes and sells everything he has, everything. Maybe probably not the clothes on his back, but everything else he sells to buy in to that field. This is what it means to follow Christ. He is everything. That changes the way we look at suffering. That changes the way we look at our jobs, our vocation, our day-to-day work. It changes the way we look at our times opening God's word. It changes everything. As we wrap up another question that I also want to pose for us to ponder is how are we viewing our life? You know, a sub-point underneath this is, is the, the eternal reality versus the temporal perspective, right? They saw Jesus as the son of Joseph and the reality of Jesus' divine nature many missed. Are there things in your life that you're looking, that your perspective is only looking at it from a temporal perspective? Are there things that you need to put on that gospel lens to look at situations, people, conflict, promotions, items, stuff, money, all of these things? Are you viewing those things through a healthy lens of the gospel with an eternal perspective? That is a terrifying but great question to bring in prayer before the Lord. God, how am I viewing things? Where in my life is my perspective skewed? Would you show that to me? It's terrifying because he will be faithful to answer that. <laughs> but it's, it's good because it produces good fruit in our lives. Your talents, your vocation, your relationships, are, you, are those surrendered to the Lord? Have you surrendered fully to Christ? to be used for his glory? Or are you looking for some recognition for yourself? That is, natu- that is the natural path, to be self-centered. But the beauty of the gospel is that we have been delivered from that natural path and set on a path that, that we can look to Christ. If you have followed Christ, if Christ is in you, then I implore you, be intentional with your time. Invest in your relationships with a gospel perspective. Pursue accurate knowledge of God that leads to a deeper, intimate relationship with him. Remain in his word. Love his people. Engage in his mission, proclaiming the gospel to all nations. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, this morning... 
God, I confess my deep need for you. God, I know there are areas in my life, in my perspective that needs to be shifted, that needs to be sanctified. And God, I pray for my, my friends and brothers and sisters here today, if there are areas in our life that we are making too big of a deal of something, Lord, I pray that you would give us a gospel eternal perspective on all that you have given us. God, I pray too that we would see you as you rightly are. Fully and truly God, fully and truly human, that you have identified with fallen humanity so that you may redeem us and restore to right relationship. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for salvation that is found only in Christ. Thank you for your patience with us, for your grace and mercy toward us. God, I pray if there's anyone here today that is not turned to you in repentance and faith and place their trust in you. Jesus, I pray today that today would be the day of salvation, that they would turn to you and trust wholly in you, Jesus. God, I also pray if there are those here today who are living a nominal Christian life, I pray that you would ignite a passion within us to pursue you, to be like you, to let go of the things of this world to embrace humility and to engage in the mission of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you would do a work in us that would bring you the most glory. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.